This is Recorded Future, Inside Threat Intelligence for Cybersecurity. Hello, everyone. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire. Thanks for joining us for Episode 66 of the Recorded Future podcast. These days, most of us have a pretty good handle on protecting the software our computers run from viruses and other types of malware. We're careful about downloading and installing software from unknown, insecure sources, and we run antivirus applications to help keep everything safe. But what about the system-level code that runs deep within the devices we rely on every day? What about the firmware? Our guest today is Terry Dunlap. He's CEO and co-founder of Refirm Labs, a tech startup that's focused on firmware, analyzing the code and helping manufacturers, organizations, and governments ensure their devices haven't been compromised. He's got a colorful history that includes some teenage hacking, time at the NSA, and the founding of several companies. Stay with us. Nineteen eighty-five. Uh, I was a junior in high school at the time, mm-hmm. and for uh, a couple years, I had a uh, Commodore sixty-four uh, with a three hundred baud modem and uh, a couple floppy drives. And we were able to. I had a little team. We were actually hacking, war dialing the city of uh, Sandusky, Ohio, looking for computers that uh, we could interact with. We didn't know what we'd find. We didn't know, you know what they were, but. Uh, we found it fascinating to uh, play with these 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 systems. And um, you know, long story short, we did some nefarious things that eventually got us caught by the local authorities, and uh, they couldn't arrest us on any hacking charges because the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act wasn't in effect until the following year in 1986. Timing is everything. Exactly. Right? <laughs> so the only thing that they actually nailed us on as juveniles was... Uh, credit card fraud. Oh, so one of the things we were doing was just uh, collecting credit card numbers out of dumpsters at the mall in the middle of the night, uh, collecting all the carbons, and then um, manipulate the phone system using some black boxing, red boxing techniques and tones to uh, actually connect with the well, the uh, bulletin board system out on the West Coast. Mm. And we would upload our credit card numbers there, and we would download some of the credit card numbers we found out there uh, and, and use those to order crazy stuff like more computer components, firecrackers, all kinds of stuff that teenagers would order. But one guy ended up having packages delivered to an abandoned house next to his, and the people that owned the property got suspicious, notified local authorities and UPS. They staked out the place, saw him actually pick up the package, went in uh, to his home. Uh, I guess his parents were at home because he obviously let them in, and then they discovered he had a handwritten diary with everybody's name in it and what had been going on for the past year and a half. Hmm. And so I got pulled out of class in junior year of high school, <laughs> down to the principal's office, saw my parents there with the police, and then we end up going to juvenile detention center for about five days before we're hauled in the court and uh, basically given a uh, suspended sentence, probation and uh, told not to touch computers for the next three years, pay some mm. court fines, and uh, once you become an adult, your record will be expunged. So, di- so this moment happens. Did you did you straighten up and fly right from from there on? For the first few months, yeah. Uh, <laughs> but you know, you know, after after you know, I didn't do anything 
put it this way. Uh, back back in those days, there was a uh, television program called Scared Straight. Oh, yeah. And let's I just say that. I was sure. scared straight for, for a good while until I got into college. Well, I'm just trying to imagine when computers is so much of your life. And I, I, I remember that time. I was, you know, similarly... Uh, took part in in a lot of those types of things uh, back in the 8-bit computer days. And the notion of someone telling me to not be able to touch a computer for years... I mean, that would have been like telling me not to breathe. Yeah. No, I mean, it's impossible, especially when, you know, you end up going to college and you're supposed to be, you know, doing papers. Right. You're not going to do it on a typewriter. I mean, you could. Some people still had typewriters in 1986, 87 time frame, but yeah. that wasn't the most efficient way to do it. But, you know, I ended up getting an Apple IIe anyway, but I wasn't doing anything nefarious at that point. So, right. um, yeah, I pretty, I pretty much learned my lesson not to... Not to muck around and get in trouble with the law. So you head off to college, and what are you studying there? <laughs> well, during high school, I was very good at science, and one of the things that uh, our, our program had was um, uh, science fair competitions at the uh, local uh, and state level, and uh, we were always in the the top top five uh, students in in the. Uh, science fair awards and so i thought i was going to be a chemical engineer hmm. until i went to college and realized that uh you know I, this stuff, I don't want to i don't see myself walking around a uh, bp plant with a hard hat and a clipboard hmm. building chemical systems so i looked for something more interesting and honestly i ended up majoring in poli sci and econ hmm. never I, I i never took any well i did take i did take one computing class uh, my freshman year and it was assembly language oh and i dropped that class after probably about <laughs> two weeks it's yeah. like no way this is this is not what i expected right so i ended up bailing and focused on primarily uh poli sci and, and econ so you get out of school and what where where do you head next i go back home to northern ohio and work with a fly-by-night uh brokerage firm because i really want i really liked investing Hmm. Uh, in economics. So I worked with a fly-by-night brokerage firm, left there, ended up working with Fidelity Investments uh, down in Cincinnati, Ohio. And then I guess I impressed enough people there that they suggested I go uh, work with this new internal group that Fidelity was creating in Boston, their, where their corporate headquarters is, uh, called the Premium Services Group, which still exists today, and it mm. caters to high net worth clients. Mm. Uh, so I was there for a number of years, uh, dealing, do, do, you know, handling people's uh, trading accounts, uh, trading stocks, options, uh, bonds, things of that nature. And my goal was to actually become a chartered financial analyst, mm-hmm. get the designation. I took two of the three tests. Um, I wanted to become uh, an analyst and work with the fund managers. But there was an internal hiring freeze at Fidelity uh, during that time. I think it was um, probably the the mid-early 90s. And so I didn't want to stick around and wait for the hiring freeze to, to unfreeze. So I contacted some college buddies and said... Um, Hey, let's uh, let's start a publishing company because we had this idea in college to create a publishing company because I actually had failed my freshman year among a significant number of the freshman class at Case Western Reserve University. We had failed uh, first year calculus, hmm. and so these guys, uh, two two buddies of mine from from Case Western, 
basically said the problem you're having is that you're being taught by these foreign TAs. Let us teach you and show you how easy it can be. So they basically sat down with me, gave me a few lessons. I took some tests and it was like, holy shit, I actually understand this stuff. This is cool. So wouldn't it be cool if you guys could like, we could write a book kind of like a, at the time, and I don't know if it's still a thing these days, but Shalm's Outline. Okay. Do you remember that? The, no, no, the, I'm not familiar with that. Shalm's Outline were, were a series of uh, uh, books that uh, kind of taught you rapidly how to do calculus, chemistry, geometry, all this kind of stuff. So we thought, you know, hey, let's let's compete with Shalm's Outline. And so uh, they would they would develop the chapters. I would r- read the chapters. And then I would have to actually execute and do the exercises at the end of the chapter. And if I understood it, we basically said that that chapter's done. Let's move on to the next one. If hmm. not, then uh, we would uh, we'd go back and revise it until I actually understood it. So we actually created Prometheus Enterprises, our first, uh, first business together, three guys. Uh, I took my 401k savings and put it into the company. <laughs> and um, we actually got on a number of... Uh, nationally syndicated shows like uh, uh, Science Friday on NPR. Sure. And uh, once we got on there and talked about uh, the state of calculus and education and teaching methodologies in our book, sales started taking off. So uh, we did that for a couple years, but uh, I had a disagreement with the partners on where the direction of the company was going to go, so I asked them to cash me out. So I left, went back to uh, Cincinnati, and um, started looking for a job there and ended up with Deloitte & Touche working with their high net worth clients mm. and uh, kind of doing the investment thing again. And I got really tight with the uh, sysadmin guy there. And uh, he kind of recognized my uh, computer acumen. So anytime he took off on vacation, I'd step in to take over his uh, sysadmin duties. Hmm. And so one time when we were out on uh, the Ohio River on his uh, jet skis, he said, hey, you still into that hacking thing? And I said, well, I mean, I have stuff set up at home, but I don't, I don't you know, break into people's systems. So he said, did you know that uh, Deloitte actually has a team where they actually get paid to go in and break into client systems? This is <laughs> the first time I have heard of people getting paid to do what was called penetration testing. Right. So he made some introductions, and then I actually went and uh, interviewed and got on the team and, and spent uh, some time there at Deloitte & Touche actually getting back into the hacking game and uh, doing penetration testing against you know their clients, which were Fortune 500 companies. Now, how, how much did you have to get up to speed there? I mean, had, your, you know, had the skills that you'd had as a teenager, think things had moved along. Yeah, I was I was keeping up with stuff on my own. I see outside. So like gotcha. in my basement, I had I had Cisco routers and uh, all right. uh, I had you know Linux systems and I was playing with all different Linux distros and gotcha. so yeah, I was I was pretty much keeping up with that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, one day I was actually at a SANS conference in Baltimore, and uh, I was in line at a at a uh, one of the Starbucks kiosks uh, in one of the concourses. And, you know, we all have our, you know, first name and who we work for on our badge. And I noticed this woman behind me. We had never seen her before. And I uh, turned to her and I said, man, it would be awesome to work at your your place. And she worked for the DOD. Mm. And I said, you guys are probably under constant attack. That would be such an uh, interesting environment in order to, you know, learn and apply these skills. And so we started talking, sent her my, my resume as she asked. And then uh, a few months later, I get a phone call from a recruiter who's with the National Security Agency. Hmm. I had no idea that's who she worked for at the time, uh, but we um, 
did a phone interview and I flew out there, uh, did some face-to-face interviews and uh, ended up uh, starting at the NSA in 2002. I have to ask, was there a conversation about your, your teenage exploits? Yes. In fact, I brought it up first. <laughs> okay. Because at the very end, in, in, when we were in person, uh, they had flown me out to Fort Meade, and I, I did the rounds with all the different groups and people. And mm-hmm. uh, uh, the, the thing, at that time, it may be different, but at that time, the way that the agency worked was that they would fly a candidate out, interview with a number of different uh, branches and organizations, And then by the time you got back to the recruiting center to speak with the recruiter, those people you have interviewed with that day should have sent back an email to that recruiter to say whether or not they were interested in hiring you. Hmm. So there were a handful of people that were interested in in, in extending an offer. So he gave me the entire uh, package for my background check and everything and said, get this back to us as soon as possible because the way that they operate is that for every position – they offer it to three or up to five different people because hmm. not everyone's going to pass the background check. Right. So when I heard that, that's when I brought up my teenage exploits. No <laughs> Funny pun intended. story. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I said, hey, look, you know, this is what happened. I'm being transparent. I'm being honest. This is what happened. They say the record's expunged, but I'm sure it just means that it's moved to a different filing cabinet only people like you have access to. Right. So right. Uh, this is this is what happened. These were the, the, the outcome. And he's, he asked me, like most people do, are you still doing it today? And it's like, no. I have systems set up at home that I can hack on. I'm not getting on, you know, the Internet and breaking into places. He said, then it shouldn't be a problem. Now, it did take a year to to, to vet me during that background uh, check process, but in the end, I ended up getting my top-secret clearance and working for the agency. Mm. So, uh, to the degree that you can share, what types of work were you doing there, and then how did that lead you to where you are today at ReFirm? So yeah, it was it was a great time there. I mean, it was probably the the only job that I actually loved and uh, actually had a hard time deciding to leave because it was hmm. so great. Uh, most of the work I did there was offensive cyber. So uh, some of the work I was tasked with was looking at certain types of embedded devices, looking for vulnerabilities that could be weaponized. And then so we would weaponize those vulnerabilities for the intelligence and the military community. Uh, One day, a uh, sister intel agency stopped by to see what what we were working on. We demonstrated our capabilities and found out that uh, they would like to use that capability in, in some of their missions. And management basically said no. And I was stunned because, I mean, we're in the middle of the global war on terror at this time. And the fact that uh, there's this capability that another intelligence agency could use, and they they flat out refused to share it, I was like, you've got to be kidding me. What was your take on on the justification there? Um, This is still kind of the the stigma that uh, is out there, is that these other agencies have a tendency not to take care of these tools, tactics, and techniques and have a propensity to burn them. I see. Meaning that uh, they usually end up getting caught. Sometimes they might end up in court where they have to be revealed how these platforms work. Uh, so the, the the NSA was and probably still is very protective uh, with these capabilities and making sure not to put them in, in, in other agencies' hands that, that could expose how these capabilities work. Hmm. So after seeing that there was a potential market opportunity 
for other agencies, I, I decided to, to leave and create my first company, which was a government contracting company called Tactical Network Solutions. That was started in 2007, literally in my basement. <laughs> and um, I spent about nine months there developing a universal plug-and-play remote exploit for Linksys routers that I knew that uh, certain elements of the military needed. Uh, I still maintained my contacts uh, with some of the uh, special mission units that were forward-deployed Overseas, and so I approached the unit commander with our with with the capability I had developed, and said, "Is this something you guys would be interested in?" And he said, "Absolutely." And then ended up uh, buying multiple licenses to that to that capability, and that was my my foray into government contracting. So now I had to create you know all the stuff that goes with creating a government contracting company, applying for Duns numbers and cage codes, and getting mm-hmm. a top secret facility clearance, and all that kind of stuff. So I built. Tactical Network Solutions, uh, in fact, the company's still around. Um, the focus has always been primarily offensive cyber capabilities, going after IoT and embedded connected devices, and offering training classes because people don't have this skill set and no schools are teaching this skill set. Now, going back uh, a little bit, part of our, our work at Tactical Network Solutions in, uh, in the mid-2000s, uh, like around 2005, 2006, or I'm sorry, no, that's a 2010, 2011 timeframe, mm-hmm. uh, was requests from our customers to rapidly identify zero-day vulnerabilities that could be weaponized. Mm. So we did a lot of this analysis and discovery process by hand and then realized in order to keep up with demand, we needed to create an automated system to help us quickly and rapidly identify where our time uh, would see a significant return on investment instead of just trying to hunt for the needle in the haystack. So we developed this internal platform, and it was very good. We could take any compiled firmware image, put it in the platform, and in 30 minutes it could identify potential zero days that we can now spend our R&D time, seeing if we could weaponize those. So it was only a year ago, 2017, June, July timeframe last year, that we were presenting this platform at a Maryland tech breakfast here in Columbia. And um, some investors happened to see what we had developed and approached us after the demonstration and said, have you ever thought about using this platform as a defensive tool instead of an offensive tool? And of course, coming from where we came from, we we didn't I didn't think about protecting anything. It's more fun to hack stuff. Come <laughs> right, on, right, right. who are we kidding here? <laughs> but you know, they presented the market opportunity of you know here's here are the manufacturers and the enterprises that could benefit from this, and you know how much something like this could be sold for in the marketplace. So. After, you know, a few weeks, months of, of discussing this, we, we finally agreed that, okay, we will uh, spin this platform off into a brand new company. It will be completely separate from Tactical Network Solutions. The platform, the intellectual property, everything will come over to this new company called Refirm Labs, which was launched last uh, July 7th. And uh, we took a seed round of uh, $1.5 million and over the past uh, pretty much year now, we've been just creating this platform that was once used to just scratch our own inch to become now an enterprise-grade SaaS cloud-based platform that's completely scalable for enterprise and developers to use during the development process of IoT embedded firmware. 
Now, so let's let's back up some, uh, just with some definitions. Um, what is firmware? Firmware. Now, we're all familiar with hardware. We're all familiar with software, but uh, firmware is probably a relatively new term for for most most people. Firmware is about as close as you can get in terms of uh, accessing the hardware on a particular platform. So, for example, the following have uh, firmware. Your phone has firmware. Your car has firmware. The Polycom phone system in your boardroom has firmware. Your TV has firmware. Basically, it's the operating system of these uh, connected devices that you know, we don't interact with via a monitor and a keyboard and a mouse. Mm-hmm. These are the brains of these devices. Your wireless router at home, your security cameras, they all have firmware. That's what makes them run and, and do what it is that they do. So, I mean, firmware has become extremely sophisticated. I mean, back in the days of the Commodore 64, I mean, the firmware that's in there usually just would help either boot the system or help operate, uh, you know, the 300 baud modem. Uh, but now we're to the point now where firmware is in your car and basically steers the car for you with lane assist or adaptive cruise control. This is all firmware that's that's in the car uh, that can be easily manipulated and if if you if an attacker is persistent enough so help me understand what's the difference between firmware and software firmware is designed at a much significantly lower level to run the very specific hardware components software is higher up the stack if you will mm-hmm. where you can actually interact with programs and install stuff and and uninstall stuff and you have more control over software versus firmware. Firmware is developed by the manufacturer. It's flashed onto a device. Uh, software, you can install, uninstall at will. You have complete control over it. So the firmware is usually designed to to run a very specific piece or collection of hardware components on a uh, printed circuit board or uh, electronic control unit or something very low level that you and I normally would not interact with on a on a regular basis. Now in the old days that firmware would have been, you know, baked into a, you know, like a ROM chip or, mm-hmm. or something yeah, like it that. Used to and, be burned in. And but so today firmware can be updated, can be changed over time? Yep. Yep. Nowadays uh, firmware is to the point where you know if a manufacturer realizes that there's a security vulnerability uh, in your wireless router they can create an updated firmware image, which then is uh, the responsibility is pushed to you, of all people, to actually be aware that the vulnerability exists. Go to the manufacturer's uh, website. Under their support page, there should be a firmware uh, image that you can click and download, and then you'd have to log into your uh, wireless router to actually apply that upgrade and then change that. It's still, it's still flashed into uh, the system, into the hardware, but it's not burned in. Where once it's burned in, it, it, it's it's very difficult, if not impossible, to to update. But firmware today is is very updatable. Your phone's a perfect example, uh, especially if you're uh, an iPhone user. You constantly see iOS updates coming out. When you take your car into uh, the uh, dealership, uh, chances are they're they're checking to see if there are any firmware updates to your infotainment system and applying those all, uh, you know, without your without you having to do anything. 
So what are the specific vulnerabilities that come with firmware versus, you know, the, the higher level things that are running on a system? You know, what we found over the, the, the many years, and it continues today, that uh, we're discovering in firmware is, do you remember the days back in the 90s when Windows 95 first hit the scene and then all the problems and the attacks that Windows users were, were seeing with, with uh, you know, ha- not ransomware, but strictly hack attacks and, mm-hmm. and viruses? I mean, all that stuff that, if you recall those days, we don't see that happening at the desktop and the server level and, and on laptops anymore. That mm. stuff's been pretty much eradicated. But we're seeing those same exact issues resurrect themselves in IoT and connected devices today. And basically, it comes down to one fundamental flaw, insecure coding practices. So Microsoft and the open source community have been very, very good over time at uh, implementing more and more secure coding practices to prevent the types of attacks we saw back in the 90s. Mm -hmm. However, for whatever reason, when we look at firmware, we're finding the same sloppy coding practices that led to the issues in the 90s that are leading to the issues today in IoT and other embedded devices. So uh, without getting too technical, we see a lot of uh, buffer overflows. Basically, a buffer overflow is when you're trying to copy or move too much data into a too small of a space. Mm -hmm. And when that happens, that causes adverse effects to the system. And for a sophisticated person, when they find something like that, a buffer overflow, they can find ways to then take control of that system, and then they become basically root or the administrator of that particular device. That's how a lot of these botnets end up being created, is that they find these these low-hanging fruit problems, take advantage of them, and then put them all in under the control of one particular master, and then create botnets that can take out the likes of Netflix and eBay and Yahoo and, and, and others. Now, there are a couple other things that we're finding in, in firmware images today that are problems. Hard-coded usernames and passwords. <laughs> now, in most cases... These are, these are engineering debugging accounts during the, the testing phase that, for whatever reason, accidentally are left in during production. And for a sophisticated attacker, it doesn't take them very long uh, to identify hard-coded usernames and passwords. And again, being able to use these to create some type of uh, botnet uh, under their control. And the third thing that we see, which uh, we should never see, is private signing keys being left behind in firmware images. And, mm. and let me explain what that is. Yeah. When, when a manufacturer or developer authors a piece of software or firmware, in order for the system where this is going to be run, uh, in order for that system to trust that, they will check to verify that the, the manufacturer signed it with a key that they recognize, their signing key. So if I see that, uh, you know, Dave's uh, software development shop was issued a signing key and I check that key against a database, then it's like, okay, I'm going to let, let that software get installed on my, on my hardware or on my desktop system or mm. on my server. However, if you leave that signing key in the firmware 
and it can be extracted, which it can easily be done, and we've done this before, we can then modify that firmware image, re-sign it as you, hmm. and then flash it onto the device as if it trusted the changes. So I'll, I'll give you right, a real... seem legitimate. Yeah, so I'll give you a real case uh, example. We were working with an automotive manufacturer, and they were concerned about the security of one of their Tier 1 suppliers. And so they provided us uh, the piece of hardware and the, the firmware image, and we did find the Tier 1 supplier signing key in there. However, the, the, the people we were working with at the automotive manufacturer didn't understand the, the risk that that presented. So we had to take it a step further and actually modify the firmware and then sign it as that Tier 1 supplier and flash it back onto the vehicle. Now, once it was on the vehicle, we demonstrated that when the person actually turns on the turn signal to turn right, the left blinker illuminates. <laughs> when you turn it left, the right blinker illuminates. And when you turn on the AC, the heat is activated. And when you turn on the heat, the AC is activated. Now, we could have been significantly more malicious, but I think that proved the point. It's, it's an unambiguous demonstration. Exactly. Right? <laughs> exactly. So you can, you, you, they clearly saw what could possibly happen with somebody's signing key accidentally left into the wow. firmware image. So, And that, shockingly, is, is a... Uh, uh, is a big problem as well. Now, you, we, we have these stories coming through about these, uh, you know, sort of international intrigue stories with, um, you know, folks out of China uh, being able to uh, to gather data and so forth. And you all have some experience with this. You, you shared a story with me with some work that you did, I think it was with a cable box uh, a while back? Yes, yes. This was a, um, actually it was a British telecom uh Router that they this was years ago. This okay, was, this was probably uh, two thousand nine, maybe time frame two thousand ten. Uh, not sure the exact time frame, but it was a while ago. And what had happened was uh, there's actually two stories. The, the the Huawei story was British Telecom outsourced the development of the BT Home Hub uh, to apparently it was Huawei mm -hmm. and. There was some checks and balances to make sure that uh, the firmware that they were receiving for this platform was secure. And there was one of those hard-coded usernames and accounts that were discovered in the firmware. Assuming it was an engineering mistake, the vendor was notified, hey, this is what we found during our security screening process. Can you remove it? And so after a number of days or a week or so, they get the new firmware version for this uh, device that is going to be deployed into millions of uh, BT customers' homes. Mm -hmm. And uh, they, did, they did remove it in the firmware. However, it appeared in a different location in the firmware, which led the, to the conclusion that this was probably done intentionally. Now, whatever, I, I don't know the exact outcome of what British Telecom said to Huawei after that fact, but that was the first, that was the first identifier for us as a company that, okay, this looks like this could be malicious. Now, fast forward to just November of last year mm -hmm. when we did some work for a Fortune 500 company who had uh, some, some concerns about some Chinese-made security cameras that were deployed on some of their properties. Hmm. Uh, the manufacturer was Dahua. And um, we looked at the firmware, and we actually identified a hard-coded username and password in there that, by all accounts, based on our 
decades of experience of looking at firmware, this was not accidental. Hmm. This was intentional. So we notified the Fortune 500 customer to be on the lookout for suspicious activity on these cameras. And within about 36 hours, uh, the uh, chief of uh, digital security basically contacted me via text uh, with a firewall log and said, you guys are spot on. Look what we discovered. And when you look at the log, you could see that there was actual uh, traffic from the client's network being sent to and out through these cameras to Chinese IP addresses. Hmm. So they were able to block the traffic, uh, and then eventually, over time, they replaced all these security cameras on their network. So we actually took those results without naming the Fortune 500 company uh, and published them in a vulnerability research research report we issued back in November. Obviously, Washington Post picked up on it, Fortune picked up on it, and of course, Dahua picked up on it. <laughs> and so they emailed us uh, saying, hey, you know, you, you, looked, you, you looked at the wrong firmware. Uh, we knew that was a mistake. Here's a link to the latest firmware. So we said, okay, we'll, we'll take a look at it. It was still there. It was still there. And I pushed back to this Dahua representative. I said, here is all the evidence of the, 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 the back door still existing in this quote-unquote new and improved firmware image. And the, the response from Dahua was, well, our engineers told us that the back door has been removed. And I said, my re- final reply to them was, you have all the proof that the back door is actually still there. Are you, sh- are you sure that your engineers aren't working for your Chinese government? And I never heard a reply back after right. that. Right. Wow. No, it's an, interesting, it's, it's an interesting story and certainly sheds light on you know, some of the things we're seeing in, in the news regularly now. Um, you know, the, one of the focuses of, of this show is uh, threat intelligence, and I, I want to get your take on that, because uh, I think you all come at this from an interesting perspective, as people are looking to protect themselves and, and uh, you know, get information to do that. What is your take on threat intelligence and, and how folks uh, can best use it to, to help protect their organizations? I think there are a lot of um, threat intelligence and threat feeds that are out there, um, I'm not sure since, you know, I I don't manage the security of a, you know, Fortune 500 enterprise, how these companies are ingesting all these different threat feeds. I'm sure there are platforms out there that do this and feed them into a sock to give them a single pane of glass Mm -hmm. to let them know where, where they reside. I think they serve their purpose, but my... My feeling is that a lot of the threat feeds and threat intel that's out there uh, focuses on the here and now and, and not what has already been deployed and could be happening. Hmm. So, you know, I, I think based on the threat feeds that I've seen, it's usually uh, some research people have done and identified a bad actor uh, either pre-positioning, taking advantage of a vulnerability, uh, and they're seeing telltale signs of activity, and then they issue uh, threat reports based on what they're seeing in the wild. Now, what we want to be able to do from a quote-unquote threat feed perspective, mm-hmm. one of the things we used to do, and we're still doing, but it started at Tactical Network Solutions to meet that zero-day weaponization demand that the government had, we scraped the internet and continue to scrape the internet of all public-facing firmware images on support pages from the likes of Sony, LG, Samsung, Linksys, D-Link, anybody Mm. who has firmware available for public download so customers can upgrade their stuff. We've been been massing 
all that firmware. Hmm. And we continue to do so under Refirm Labs. What we would like to be able to do, and we haven't completely fleshed this out yet, but as part of a kind of a threat feed uh, option is to provide, say, procurement uh, offices in Fortune 500 companies that might be considering, oh, I don't know, the latest HP multifunction printer. Right. To be able to go to a, a an interface and punch in the make model of what internet-connected device you're looking to buy and get an, a consumer reports-like analysis with a star rating to see how secure that firmware is for that particular device and how that manufacturer has been treating firmware security issues over time. So, so you rate the manufacturer that they, they, are, they are or may not be someone who takes this uh, an appropriate level of seriousness. Exactly. So if, if you know, I've, I've been in talks with a lot of people at companies like D-Link, TrendNet, Netgear, Belkin, mm-hmm. and, you know, adding any more costs, especially security costs, to the development life cycle of these types of platforms is is really no go for a lot of them because mm. the margins are so thin right and that the product life cycles are so short that one company told me that if i add another dollar of cost that equates to a $5 increase at the at the retail level however you look at other companies like a honeywell which we've been talking to who's who's a big player in critical infrastructure Hmm. They're all about being as proactive as possible and willing to adopt and spend money on security solutions now to prevent some bad stuff happening down the road. So it depends on who, where in that, in, in that chain of products you're targeting these solutions to. There yeah. are some manufacturers who could care less because their product life cycles show so short and the margins are so thin. But then you have people out there like your HPs of the world all the way up to, you know, industrial control systems like Honeywell who are very serious about uh, security. So I, I want to wrap up with you, but I, I want to finish by getting your take on, you know, for that person who is out there uh, and is charged with securing their company, um, how much should firmware be on their mind? And I realize I'm, I'm sort of, this is like asking a barber if I need a haircut. But, uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> how much should firmware be on their minds? And, and what are the ways, what are the, the, we talk about, you know, basic hygiene. What are the basic hygiene ways that folks can, can keep up with making sure that uh, they're where they should be when it comes to firmware? Well, one thing I would, I would recommend is, you know, start at least considering it taking it seriously, uh, examine, see if you even have an inventory of all of your IoT-connected devices. Hmm. I, I, and I mean, look at that Polycom that's sitting in the, in the boardroom. When was the last time that f- you've gone out to Polycom's website to see if there's a firmware update for that uh, Polycom system sitting in the boardroom? Or the TV? Usually the TV's will tell you if there's if there's an update available. Mm-hmm. Uh, security cameras are a big thing. Now, a lot of Fortune 500 companies probably do not deal directly with the vendor when they buy security cameras. They probably deal with some value-added reseller, some VAR. Uh, but I would be in contact with that rep to say, you know, find out what what, what have been the most recent security issues with these cameras and have, have you or your team come in and actually updated or applied any of the patches? Because a lot of companies... Uh, actually, unfortunately, have Dahua and Hike Vision security cameras deployed throughout their network. And 
uh, wasn't too long ago, Wall Street Journal reported that Hikvision, or Hikvision, depending on the pronunciation, is 42% owned by the Chinese government. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, would, I would at least put it on my radar. And the, the easiest things to do would try to get an inventory of these devices, and if they were handled and installed by a VAR, find out when the last security updates were, were issued. And if they tell you that there have been no security update issues since they've been deployed, I'd be very, very curious as right. to why. Um, Should you re- routinely be looking at the traffic to and from these devices, checking in on them? Or is that uh, – where, where do we stand with that? You know, it, it, if you know what w- the type of traffic that should be going back and forth uh, to these devices, for example, a polycom phone. Right. I mean, you expect some SIP traffic, okay, uh, and some RTP, real-time protocol traffic. If you see, you know, HTTP traffic coming out of a polycom phone going to an IP address outside your network that you don't recognize, I, I would I would be very suspicious that something's wrong with that phone. And, and to be quite honest with you, we were engaged in a uh, uh, project where we were doing some some pen testing, which is something we don't normally do, but we decided to do it in this one case. And we were able to actually hot mic a polycom system in a boardroom sitting here in Columbia, Maryland, hmm. and it was up in Michigan. Now, it required us to actually, believe it or not, downgrade the firmware on that Polycom phone. So we mm-hmm. had to go to Polycom's website, get an older version of the firmware, mm-hmm. and then flash it onto uh, the existing device. But then we were basically able to do, uh, we had complete control of that particular platform. Wow. So I, w- I would be looking, yeah, you could look at traffic. Um, you have to be certain of what type of traffic expectations are, get a baseline for that, and then look for any anomalous behavior outside of that. Our thanks to Terry Dunlap from Refirm Labs for joining us. Don't forget to sign up for the Recorded Future Cyber Daily email, where every day you'll receive the top results for trending technical indicators that are crossing the web. Cyber news, targeted industries, threat actors, exploited vulnerabilities, malware, suspicious IP addresses, and much more. You can find that at recordedfuture.com intel. We hope you've enjoyed the show and that you'll subscribe and help spread the word among your colleagues and online. The Recorded Future podcast team includes coordinating producer Amanda McKeown, executive producer Greg Barrett, the show is produced by Pratt Street Media, with editor John Petrick, executive producer Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening.